Chapter Fourteen of the Dragon and the Raven by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. The Dragon and the Raven by G. A. Henty. Chapter Fourteen. The Repulse of the Norsemen. When within half a mile of the Danish camp, Edmund and Egbert left the band and advanced alone. They were pretty confident that they should find but few of the Danes near the bank of the river, for the arrows from the walls of Paris carried some distance beyond it, and the Northmen consequently encamped some hundred yards away. They had to pick their way carefully, for the ships were moored along the bank, their ropes being fastened to great stakes driven into the ground. There were lights on board the vessels, many of the crews remaining on board. They made their way along until they reached the spot they aimed at. Here lay the three sets of vessels, each six deep. Their masts had been removed, and the great towers rose high into the darkness above the platforms extending over their decks. The planks forming the gangways up which the towers had been moved had been taken away, save one which gave access to each tier, and Edmund doubted not that it was intended that they should the next morning move across the river in tow of the numerous rowboats. The two Saxons did not attempt to go on board, as they had now found out all they wanted, and might mar all by disturbing some sleeper upon the platform. They accordingly returned to the spot where the band were awaiting them. "'I propose, Egbert,' Edmund said, "'that as we go along we cut the mooring ropes of all the vessels. We must do it quietly, so as not to excite any alarm, and they will know nothing of it until they find themselves drifting down the river in a mass. Then there will be great jostling and carrying away of bowsprits and bulwarks, and the confusion and shouting which will arise will tend to confuse the Danes and to distract their attention from us.' Egbert agreed to the proposal, and as soon as they reached the first ships the Saxons began their work, sawing with their knives and daggers through the ropes. The vessels lay four or five deep, and there were many cables to cut, but the keen knives of the Saxons made short work of these. Before beginning their work they had spread along the bank, leaving only two men abreast of each ship, so that in the course of two or three minutes the cables, for the length of forty ships, were severed, and these and their consorts beyond them began drifting out into the stream. The Saxons ran quickly on ahead and repeated the work until the whole of the vessels below those forming the platform of the towers were adrift in the stream. But by this time those in the ships at the lower end of the tiers had taken the alarm, and shouts of wonder and anger rose on the air. The nine Saxons told off for the purpose leaped into three small boats and rowed out into the stream, while the rest of the band, divided into three parties, dashed across the planks onto the platforms. The Danes here had already been alarmed by the uproar from the vessels adrift and though unable to see what was passing, judged that something was wrong, and had called to their comrades sleeping in the holds to come up. Some of these bearing torches came up on deck just as the Saxons, pouring across the planks which connected the ships with the shore, fell upon them. Taken utterly by surprise, the Danes could offer no effective resistance. The Saxons, charging with leveled spears, drove those above headlong into the water. Then, having made themselves masters of the platforms, they dashed below and dispatched the Danes they found there. The torches were now applied to the contents of the holes. These were for the most part crammed with the booty which the Norsemen had gained at Havre, Rouen, and other places, and the flames speedily shot up. By this time the Danes in the camp, alarmed by the shouting from the drifting ships and the sounds of conflict from the towers, came flocking down in haste. The planks had already been thrown overboard. The Danes strove by pulling at the ropes to haul the vessels nearer to land, some ran toward their ships, others jumped into boats and pushed out to the platforms, and strove to get on board them. But by this time the flames were rising higher through the hatchways. 
According to previous agreement, Edmund and the leaders of the other two parties, seeing that the flames had now a firm hold, cut the ropes which fastened them to the bank, and as soon as the stream began to swing them out, leaped into the boats and rowed for the opposite shore. The uproar was now tremendous, and shouts of rage rose from the Northmen, who were amazed and puzzled by the appearance of the Saxons, whose attire differed but slightly from their own, and the general belief among them was that this sudden alarm was the result of treachery among themselves. There was no time to waste in conjecture that three groups of ships were now masses of flame, in the midst of which the lofty towers rose high. The shouts of the sailors and the vessels crowded together in helpless confusion in the stream below rose higher and higher as the blazing vessels drifted down and threatened to overtake them. Some tried to hoist their sails, others got out long oars and strove to sweep their vessels toward the shore, but they were huddled too closely in the stream, the yards and rigging of many having become interlocked with each other. The northmen leaped into the rowing boats by the bank above where the tower ships had been moored, and rowing down endeavored to tow them to the bank, but they were now in a blaze from end to end. The heat was so great that it was difficult to approach them, and all endeavors to fasten ropes to them were frustrated, as these were instantly consumed by the fire. The northmen, finding their efforts unavailing, then turned their attention to trying to tow the ships below to the banks. In some cases they were successful. A few of the vessels also at the lower end of the mass succeeded in getting up their sails and drawing out from their fellows, for the wind was blowing downstream. This, however, proved the destruction of the rest of the ships, for the great towers rising amid the lofty pillars of flame acted as sails and bore the fire-ships down upon the helpless crowd of vessels. Soon they reached those nearest to them, and the flames, borne forward by the wind, sprang from vessel to vessel. There was no longer any hope of saving a single ship, and the crews climbing hastily across from one to the other till they reached those nearest the shore, leaped overboard. Although now more than half a mile below the city, the flames lit up the walls with a bright glare, and the shouts of the exulting Franks rose loud and continuous. The sudden shouting which had broken out among the Danes had alarmed the watchmen who, ignorant of the cause, called the citizens to arms, and these on reaching the walls had stood astonished at the spectacle. The flames were already rising from the three groups of ships which they had regarded with so much anxiety on a previous evening, and by the light they could see the river below covered with a mass of drifting vessels. Then they saw the tower-ships float away from the bank, and the figures on their decks leap into three small boats which at once rowed with all speed across the river. That they were friends who had wrought this destruction was certain, and Count Eudes threw open the gate and with Abbe Eble ran down to meet them. They were astonished when Edmund with his Saxons leaped to land. "'What miracle is this?' the Count exclaimed. "'A simple matter, Sir Count,' Edmund answered, my kinsman and I, seeing that the townspeople were troubled by yonder towers, determined to destroy them. We have succeeded in doing so, and with them I trust fully half of the Danish fleet will perish. "'You are the saviour of our town, my brave young Saxon,' Count Eudes cried, embracing him. "'If Paris is saved, it will be thanks to the valiant deed that you have accomplished this night. But let us to the walls again, where we may the better see whether the Danes can remove their ships from these great furnaces which are bearing down upon them. The sight from the walls, when the fire-ships reached the fleet and the flames spread, was grand in the extreme, for in half an hour nigh three hundred vessels were in flames. For some time the three towers rose like pillars of fire above the burning mass, then, one by one, they fell with a crash which could be plainly heard, although they were now nearly a mile away. Paris was wild with joy at the destruction of the towers which had menaced it. 
and the conflagration of nigh half the Danish fleet, laden with the spoil of northern France. Edmund and his Saxons were conducted in triumph by a shouting crowd to the palace of the archbishop, where Goslin, in the name of the city, returned them the heartiest thanks for the services which they had rendered. The wealthy citizens vied with each other in bestowing costly presents upon them. Bonfires were lighted in the streets until morning the town gave itself up to revelry and rejoicing. A month elapsed before the Danes recovered from the blow which had been dealt them and resumed the assault. Part of this time had been spent in manufacturing great shields of bull's hide. These were strongly constructed and were each capable of covering six men. On the twenty-ninth of January their preparations were complete, and at daybreak the warders on the wall saw them pouring down into their ships and galleys. As the fleet crossed the river its aspect was singular. The decks were covered by the black shields, above which appeared a forest of spears, sparkling in the morning sunlight. As they reached the shore the Northmen sprang to land, while from the decks of the vessels a storm of missiles flew toward the walls. Vast numbers of catapults, which they had manufactured since their last attack, hurled masses of stone, heavy javelins, and leaden bullets, while thousands of arrows darkened the air. The bells of the church sounded the alarm which called every citizen capable of bearing arms to the walls. The archbishop took his place at the spot most threatened by the enemy, with his nephew, the valiant abbe, by his side. The counts Eudes, Robert, Ragonair, Upton, and Herling stood foremost among the defenders. The Saxons, as before, were held in reserve, but to Edmund and Egbert, had been assigned, at their urgent request, the command of the defence of the tower. It was against this point that the Danes again made their most desperate effort. Their main body advanced against it, and smaller parties attacked the city at other points, while the rowing galleys, divided into two bodies, strove to destroy the bridge, and so isolate the defenders of the post. Around the tower the combat was desperate. The assailants were well-nigh hidden under their great bucklers, their shouts and the constant clashing of arms which they maintained made a terrific uproar. A storm of missiles from the fleet poured upon the tower, while from the crevices between the shields the bowmen shot incessantly at the defenders. The very number of the Danes hindered their attack, for the tower was so small that comparatively few could approach at once. It had been greatly strengthened since the last assault, and through the loopholes in the walls the archers did their best to answer the storm of missiles poured into the fort. Edmund and Egbert were among them begging them not to fire at random, but to choose moments when the movements of the assailants opened a space in the roof of shields which covered them. Whenever this took place a dozen arrows fell true to the mark. Some of those bearing the shield would be struck, and those falling a gap would be caused through which the arrows of the defenders flew thickly, causing death and confusion until the shield could be raised in its place again. Boiling liquids were poured over those who approached the walls, and huge stones crushed the shields and their bearers. Eudes and his men valiantly defended the wall, and the Danes in vain strove to scale it. All day long the battle continued, but at nightfall the tower still remained in the hands of the defenders, the deep ditch which they had dug round it having prevented the Danes from working at the wall, as they had done in the previous assault. When darkness came on the Danes did not retire, but lay down in the positions they occupied under their shields. In the morning many ships were seen crossing the river again, and the defenders saw to their surprise numbers of captives who had been collected from the surrounding country, troops of oxen, shiploads of branches of trees, trusses of hay and corn, and faggots of vines landed. Their surprise became horror when they saw the captives and the cattle alike slaughtered as they landed. Their bodies were brought forward under cover of the shields and thrown into the moat, in which, too, were cast the hay, the straw, the faggots, and the trees. 
At the sight of the massacre the archbishop prayed to the Virgin to give him strength, and drawing a bow to its full length, let fly an arrow, which, great as was the distance, flew true to its mark and struck the executioner full in the face. This apparent miracle of the Virgin in their favour reanimated the spirit of the defenders, and a solemn service was instantly held in the church in her honour, and prayers were offered to her to save Lutice, which was the original name of Paris, and was still cherished by its inhabitants. The Danes were occupied all day at their work of filling up the moat. The besieged were not idle, but laboured at the construction of several mangonels capable of casting huge blocks of stone. In the morning the Danes planted their battering-rams, one on each side of the tower, and recommenced the assault. The new machines of the defenders did great havoc in their ranks, their heavy stones crashing through the roof of bucklers and crushing those who held them, and for a time the Norsemen desisted from the attack. They now filled three of their largest vessels with combustibles, and, placing them on the windward side of the bridge, set them alight. The people of Paris beheld with affright these fire-ships bearing down upon the bridge, and old and young burst into tears and cries at the view of the approaching destruction, and, led by the archbishop, all joined in a prayer to Saint-Germain, the patron saint of Paris, to protect the city. The exulting Danes replied to the cries of those on the walls with triumphant shouts, Thanks, though, as the Franks believed to the interposition of Saint-Germain, the fire-ships struck against the pile of stones from which the beams supporting the bridge in the centre were raised. Eudas and his companions leaped down from the bridge, and with hatchets hewed holes in the sides of the ship at the water-line, and they sank without having effected any damage to the bridge. It was now the turn of the Franks to raise triumphant shouts, while the Danes, disheartened, fell back from the attack, and at night recrossed the river leaving two of their battering-rams as tokens of the triumph of the besieged. Paris had now a respite, while the Danes again spread over the countryside, many of them ascending the river in their ships and wasting the country as far as Burgundy. The monastery of Saint-Germain, the church in which the body of the saint was buried, still remained untouched. The bands of Northmen who had invaded England had never hesitated to plunder and destroy the churches and shrines of the Christians, but hitherto some thought of superstition had kept the followers of Siegfroy from the assailing the monastery of Saint-Germain. One soldier, bolder than the rest, now approached the church with his spear, broke some of the windows. The Abbe d'Abon, an eyewitness and minute historian of the siege of Paris, states that the impious Dane was at once struck dead. The same fate befell one of his comrades, who mounted to the platform at the top of the church, and in descending fell off and was killed. A third, who entered the church and looked round, lost his sight forever. A fourth, entering it, fell dead, and a fifth, who more bold than all tried to break into the tomb of the saint, was killed by a stone which fell upon him. One night, after a continuance of heavy rain, the sand being greatly swollen, swept away the centre of the bridge connecting the town with the tower. At daybreak the northmen, seeing what had taken place, hastened across the river and attacked the tower. The garrison was but a small one, no more than twenty men having slept there. For a time these repulsed every effort of the Danes, but gradually their numbers were lessened, until at last fourteen only remained. Their names have come down to us. Besides Edmund and Egbert, there were Hermanfroy, Herevi, Herilard, Odaker, Herrick, Arnold, Sohi, Gerbert, Elvedon, Havderad, Ermard, and Goswin. These risks resisted so valiantly that the Danes, after losing large numbers in the vain attempt to storm the walls, brought up a wagon full of grain. This they rolled forward to the gate of the tower, and set it on fire. 
The flames rapidly spread from the gates to the walls, which were all of wood, and soon the whole were a sheet of flames. The little band of defenders retreated on to the end of the bridge, and there, when the flames had sufficiently abated to allow them to pass, the Northmen attacked. Edmund and Egbert were both good swimmers, but this was an accomplishment which but few of the Franks possessed, and none of the remnant of the garrison were able to swim. For a long time the little band repulsed all the efforts of the Danes, but were gradually driven back, foot by foot, until they reached the edge of the chasm. Here they made a last desperate stand, but were at length cut down or driven over by sheer weight of numbers. Egbert and Edmund had disencumbered themselves of all their defensive armor, and at the last moment, throwing off their helmets and relinquishing their spears, they plunged into the stream, diving deeply to avoid the arrows of the Northmen. The fact of the river being in flood, which had caused the destruction of the tower, now proved the cause of their safety. Had the water been clear, the Danes on the bridge above could have marked their progress and poured a storm of arrows upon them as they came to the surface, but its yellow and turbid waters concealed them from sight, and each time they rose to the surface for air, they were enabled to take a rapid breath and drive again, before their enemies could direct and launch their arrows at them. As they drifted far down the stream, they reached the land beyond bowshot of the Danes, and they soon entered the town amid the loud acclamations of the citizens. The Danes now for the most part drew off from the neighborhood, and Abbe Ebley led out a sortie which reached the Danish camp, and driving back those whom they found within it, set it on fire, and effected their retreat to Paris without loss, in spite of the efforts of the enemy, who rapidly assembled at the sight of the flames. The Danes had brought in from the surrounding country such vast quantities of cattle, sheep, and goats, that their camps would not suffice to hold them, and they turned the church of Saint-Germain to a stable, and crowded it with these animals. The saint, as the Abbe d'Abon relates, indignant at this desecration, sent a terrible plague among the cattle, and when the Danes in the morning entered the church it contained nothing but carcasses in the last state of decomposition. The valiant defense of Paris had given time for the rest of France to arm, and the Danes scattered over the country now met with a stout resistance. The Northmen were defeated in their efforts to capture Le Mans, Chartres, and other towns, and were defeated in several battles near Chartres by Godroy and Odin. In March, Henri advanced with a strong force to the relief of Paris, and arriving at night attacked the camp of the Danes, slew great numbers, and captured a vast booty, and then, having supplied Paris with a considerable amount of provisions, retired with his band before the Danes had time to assemble in sufficient strength to oppose him. Shortly afterwards, the Danes expressed the desire of Siegfroy to hold parley with the Count Eudes. Siegfroy and a number of his warriors landed, and Eudes left the city and advanced to meet them. No sooner had he reached them than he was attacked by the Northmen, but drawing his sword he defended himself with immense bravery until the garrison ran down to his succor, and the Danes were driven back to their ship with loss of nearly half of their party. The Danes now left the church of saint germain les and surrounded the monastery of saint germain de Pré, but the monks there paid him sixty pounds of pure silver to leave them in peace. Siegfroy now wished to abandon the siege, which had already cost him so dear, but the Northmen, furious at their losses, determined upon another assault. "'Very well,' the king said. "'Have your way, then. Attack Paris on all sides. Go down its towers and make breaches in its walls, for once I will remain a spectator.' The Danes crossed the river and landed on the island, but owing to the absence of large numbers on other expeditions, and the heavy losses which they had already suffered, their numbers were no longer so overwhelming, and Count Eudes led out his forces to oppose them outside the walls. 
This time Edmund headed his band of Saxons, who until now had only taken part as archers in the defense. The combat was a furious one. In spite of the valor of Eudas and Ebli, the Danes pressed hard upon the Franks, and were driving them back towards the gates when Edmund led his Saxons, in the close phalanx in which they had so often met the Danes in the field, to the front. With irresistible force the wedge burst its way through the ranks of the Danes, bearing all before it with its wedge of spears. Into the gap thus formed, Eudas and Ebli with their bravest men threw themselves, and the Danes, severed in two, were driven back toward their ships. But for some hours the rain had been falling heavily, and the river was rapidly rising and had already overflowed a portion of the island. Thus the Danes had great difficulty in getting on board their ships again, and great numbers were killed in doing so. There was no longer any resistance to Sigefroid's wishes. A parley was held with the city, and a further sum being added to that contributed by the monks of Saint-Germain-de-Prés, the Danes drew off from the town. At this time the long confinement of so many men within the walls had caused a pestilence to break out in Paris. The Archbishop Goslin, the Bishop Everard of Seine, the Prince Hugus, and many others died. The 16th of April was the day on which the Parisians were accustomed to go in solemn procession to the search of Saint-Germain. The Northmen, knowing this, in mockery filled a wagon with grain and organized a mock procession. The bullocks who drew the chariot suddenly became lame. Numbers of other bullocks were attached, but although goaded by spears, their united efforts were unable to drag the wagon an inch, and the Danes were obliged at last to abandon their attention. The same day Saint-Germain is reported to have further shown his power. One of the Northmen, condemned for some offense to be executed, fled to the church for refuge and was there slain by his countrymen. But all who took part in the deed at once fell dead. The Northmen, struck by these miracles, placed a certain number as guard over the church to prevent any from touching aught that it contained. One of these men, a Dane of great stature, spread his bed in the church and slept there, but to the astonishment of his comrades he was found in the morning to have shrunk to the size of a newborn infant, at which stature he remained for the rest of his life. A miracle of an opposite kind was at the same time performed in the town. A valiant warrior had from the effects of fever fallen into an extreme weakness, and was devoured with grief at the thought that he should no longer be able to take share in the defence of the town. To him Saint-Germain appeared at night, and told him that his prayers had been heard, and that his strength should be restored to him. On awakening in the morning he found that he was as vigorous and as robust as ever. Another day, when the soldiers were carrying the banner of the saint round the walls of the town, followed by the citizens chanting hymns, one of the bearers of the holy relics, named Gosbert, was struck by a stone from a catapult. The man who had fired it fell dead, while Gosbert continued his promenade, in no way injured by the blow. The Abbe de Bon vouches for these miracles on the part of Saint-Germain in defense of his faithful city. End of chapter 14, recorded by Mike Harris.